Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. I'm Charlie J. Danders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks about science quite a lot. Do you think about science when you are drinking coffee? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about thermodynamics. I think about chemistry. What about when you're, like, picking out an outfit in the morning? I definitely think about the chronodynamics of my outfit and, like, <laughs> what kind of effect it's going to have on the timeline. Wow. Yep, that, for this sure. is why I love you because of the chronodynamics in your outfit. Uh, I knew there was some reason. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> totally it. So we are not actually talking about Charlie's outfits today. We are going to be talking about the deep future of humanity in science fiction. Basically, what's going to happen to humans over the next 10,000 years, maybe even the next million years, and how do we imagine that? Because it's really far away, so there's a lot of speculative craziness. And then, as a super special treat, we're going to talk about Charlie's new novel, The City in the Middle of the Night, which came out this month, February, and also involves predicting the deep future of humanity. So you're going to get to hear Charlie's thought process and how she did that. So I'm excited to know more. So, Annalie, you know, what does it take to imagine the future of humanity? What kind of things do you have to consider when coming up with a future history? So there's a lot of different ways to think about the future. I mean, obviously, a lot of science fiction is what we call near future science fiction. So it's looking at stuff anywhere from the next five years to maybe the next 50 to 100 years. I mean, everyone has a different definition of near future. But I tend to think of it as anything that's like within, you know, basically a very long human lifespan. And after that, you know, you kind of have middle range, which is kind of where Star Trek sits, where it's a couple centuries in the future. And then there's these far future stories, which go way, way, way into the future, sometimes tens of thousands, sometimes millions of years into the future. And those are in some ways the hardest in order to make them feel realistic, but they're also the most freeing because you're so far away from Earth and humanity as it is now, that you can kind of do whatever you want and justify mm -hmm. it because you can be like, well, it's been 10,000 years. So, right. <laughs> or it's been 100,000 years. We've evolved into something else over that time. So, I find snail that snail people. Snail people. And that's basically how you do it, by the way, is you just add a snail to <laughs> everyone and then it's immediately futuristic. So, there's a couple of ways that science fiction does this. And I wanted to start out with a clip from a great cult movie with Christian Amazing. Bale called Equilibrium. And this is from the opening sequence where we learn the future history. It's kind of it's kind of near future, it's kind of far future, and this is how they do it. In the first years of the 21st century, a third world war broke out. Those of us who survived knew Mankind could never survive a fourth. That our own volatile natures could simply no longer be risked. So we have created a new arm of the law, the Grammaton Cleric. 
whose sole task it is to seek out and eradicate the true source of man's inhumanity to man, his ability to feel. So setting aside grammaton clerics, which is like, okay, we fight for good syntax. Like, They're like, you did not use the Oxford comma. We will cleanse you. Yeah. Which version of whose are you using? Um, did you we spell the their right? We are grammaton. But we all know, those of us who've seen this fine and wonderful film, that what the grammaton clerics mostly do is called gun kata. Right. Which is a new martial art with guns, which is how futuristic this is. Because imagine that, uh, martial arts with guns. But it's also a future where the way that the movie is signaling to us with this kind of clumsy opening voiceover that it's the far future is they change one dramatic thing, Mm -hmm. which is that this is a future where they now have a drug that can suppress everyone's emotions, which is a completely you know, ridiculous idea. It makes no sense scientifically unless you're in the far future, <laughs> in which case we can do shit like that. You know, we see that pattern cropping up a lot in especially films where it's like we're in the far future, but really only one major thing is different. And sometimes that thing is like civilization has fallen. And so now we're like living in roving bands or It's, you know, something like this where it's like we have turned off our emotions and we've become cannibals. And that's kind of the shorthand for saying that. It's often how you get dystopias, right? Because dystopias are often like, what if everybody suddenly started walking on their hands? And like, and sometimes those kinds of predictions, uh, well, they're not really predictions, but these kinds of speculative worlds can get really complicated. And I think there's great examples. For example, in Ursula Le Guin's books, the um, cluster of novels she wrote about a far future society with you know many worlds in it. It's the Hainish. The Hainish cycle. cycle. And it's like sort of they're very loosely linked. I've actually just been rereading them. Yeah. And so it's like Left Hand of Darkness, The Dispossessed. Those are like the two classic, but there's a bunch more. And it's kind of about humanity in thousands and thousands of years. And the reason why they're very complex is because, you know, Le Guin isn't just saying, like, we changed the one thing, you know, like, we have grammaton clerics now. Mm -hmm. She's saying, like, actually, humanity has branched into kind of multiple different cultural groups, depending on what planet they live on. And they've kind of lost touch with each other in some cases and are revisiting each other sort of as anthropologists. There's aliens in Mm -hmm. some cases. And so I think it becomes quickly a much more complicated account of like what it would be like to be in the far future. Yeah. And in fact, I think in her universe, humans didn't originate on Earth. Earth is one of the planets that we were kind of like seeded onto or that we colonized at some point in the past and we forgot about that. It's interesting you bring up those books because in the case of those books, Le Guin throws in a million different ideas for how people could change. And some of them, like she talked very honestly about the fact that she ended up thinking that some of them were a kind of not a good idea. <laughs> like, for example, in the early Hainish books, there's a thing called mind speech, which, you know, the first three books it's in, and then it's also in Left Hand of Darkness. And it's this kind of telepathic communication that you can have with somebody when you've kind of gotten really close to them emotionally and psychologically, you can speak to them telepathically. And she basically decided that that didn't really make any sense or that she didn't like that idea anymore. So she just kind of retconned it away for the later books and was just like, oh, they don't do that anymore. Or That's so interesting. You know, it's funny because I feel like telepathy is a big part of a lot of mm-hmm. books that look at the far future of humanity. Octavia Butler includes it in a number of her books, most notably the Pattern Master series, which really does jump 
many, it's like tens of thousands of years into the future and humanity has diverged into multiple species. But we also see it in a number of other places where that's kind of the signal that we've become, you know, more than human somehow. We're, we're able to communicate mentally. But then there's also a whole cycle of novels which are about post-humanity, post-scarcity worlds. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Ian M. Banks's culture series is probably one of the best examples of this, where it's kind of an Ursula Le Guin-type scenario. Humanity has kind of seeded multiple planets, but we have basically transcended our bodies. You know, through using technological enhancements, we can upload our brains, we can put ourselves into multiple bodies. There's AIs that are super intelligent and kind of just take care of us for some reason that we never fully understand. Sometimes the AIs explain like, well, we just kind of like you. You know, you're very amusing and you seem nice, you know. And of course, some of the AIs don't care for humans. That's one other vision, I think. So not so much about psychic powers or about humans evolving to be um, other creatures, but simply that we take complete control of our of our evolution. It's interesting because so many science fiction writers have created these like elaborate, complicated future histories, like from Olaf Stapleton to like Robert A. Heinlein to Liquid and Butler and a bunch of others. And, you know, what is it that makes a future history seem plausible versus just like a fanciful like bunch of stuff that happened? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think complexity has something to do with it. I think that's why both the culture series and the Hainish cycle to me feel like very uh, good examples of how that can work because we see in both those cycles of books, there's a lot of astropolitics. There's a lot of diversity of human life. Humans have had a number of different experiences as they've gone out into the universe. I mean, all of these are stories that assume we'll go into space. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a certain trajectory there, too. That's that's a trope, and, and I should probably question that, too, and say, like, well, why do we have to go into space, you know? And I think that The Dying Earth, which is by... Is that Jack Vance, yeah. Uh, the Dying Earth is a great example of one where I don't think we do go into space. We it's, wind up on yeah. Earth, and Earth is just getting older and older, and, there's, and it becomes a kind of fantasy world. And I was going to say, that's another interesting way that we signal the far future often in these books is that it looks like fantasy. You know, Anne McCaffrey's Pern books, like Say What You Will. I love dragons, so I'm like all about that. But that's a series where humans have colonized another world that have indigenous creatures like dragons there. And it has its own kind of ecosystem where the dragons are required to maintain fertility on the planet. But it feels like fantasy when you're reading it. It's like it's humans riding dragons, Mm -hmm. but it's actually the far future. And we see the same thing in Richard Morgan's series that starts with The Steel Remains, which is also far future, but it turns out you at first think it's just a, a world of elves and mm-hmm. magic. I think N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth series is a similar example where it feels like it's magic, but maybe it's super technology. Once you get into the far future, you get to do a lot more genre blending. Once all of the kind of like trappings of the present and like the science that we understand today are kind of stripped away, you can get to this kind of weird fantastical realm and it becomes just, it can get really trippy. I think that's one of the ways that you know that it's the far future versus the near future is that it gets trippy as fuck and you're just tripping balls the whole time because it's the far future. (laughs) I wanted to play another clip, which I think demonstrates a trope in this kind of area. This is from a, a movie that all of you should have seen called D-War, colon, Dragon Wars. Everyone believes the time of dragons has passed. 
but the time of dragons has only just begun. Every 500 years, a young woman is born, a woman who possesses a spirit power that can turn a serpent into the mightiest dragon of all. A good serpent will use this mighty power to protect the universe. An evil serpent will use the mighty power to destroy the world. Now is the time for the spirit to be awakened. Now is the time for destiny to unfold. So this is a movie that's set in present-day Earth, but it's all about a prophecy about a kind of magical thing, and it sort of signals to us that we're in deep time mm-hmm. because this is something that happens every 500 years. And I think that one of the parts of this kind of fantasy future often involves prophecy. And I was thinking about that a lot in the context of the Dune books and the mini movies and miniseries that have been made of the Dune books, because those are set in a fantastical far future that also involves a prophecy. And part of the way that our minds, I think, are able to kind of wrap themselves around the idea of like thousands of years in the future is to think in the context of like, what if we predicted something now that would come true in this distant place? That's also in the foundation books, by the way, Isaac Asimov's famous foundation cycle, where which is very hard SF in many ways, but it's far future and it's about a, a prophecy, basically. Computers come up with a prophecy, <laughs> but it's still a prophecy that we're entering into a new dark ages and we need to kind of gird our loins or whatever for the dark ages. Uh, I mean, they don't actually gird their loins, they do other, <laughs> other things. So I think that prophecy is kind of built into this and I think, you know, you kind of get cheesy version of it in D-War where like the dragons come back, which is, by the way, a great movie if you love dragons. This is like a sort of subplot about dragons in this episode <laughs> for some reason. It's, you know, I yeah, I love D-War. But I think in Dune, you get the more, the complexity that we were talking about before from Ursula Le Guin and Ian and Banks where, you know, there's a huge geopolitical conflict that we find out about with AIs kind of being demonized. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole jihad that happens where, um, which is called jihad in the books because a lot of the culture is influenced by Islam. And it's a jihad against AI, basically. And then that helps explain why they have these post-human bodies where they've been kind of humans have been augmented with technology because they're using humans instead of computers for a lot of their transport and, you know, computery crap, whatever. They, right. <laughs> computery crap of the future. They actually have a class of humans, Mintats, that are basically computers. You know, I love the complicated space politics. I love any kind of, like you said, I think complexity is a big part of making these future histories of the human race and like what we're going to become feel plausible even if they get trippy and weird and kind of off the chain in terms of like, you know, we're all going to have seven heads and like 10 pairs of wings and whatever. You know, we're all going to be snail people, basically. We're going to be riding on the backs of dragons or giant worms. Snail people riding on dragons, riding on worms, basically. Yes. But drinking spice water. To me, I think that part of what makes a future history or any kind of like future scenario feel plausible is that human nature hasn't necessarily changed that much. Like even if we've become like kind of a slightly different species, even if our resource constraints are not the same as the resource constraints that we're facing, you know, in the early 21st century, something has to be recognizable about human nature and politics. The thing that throws me out of a future uh, history is when I feel like 
kind of the Star Trek thing, but the thing that Star Trek flirts with of like, oh, we've eliminated the bad parts of human nature or... Yeah, we have no more war, no more starvation. Yeah, we've gotten rid of all of our negative personalities, sort of like in equilibrium, but it's shown as being sort of like a good thing. The idea that we can transcend our humanity, quote unquote, which I think makes it harder for me to, to buy into the story. And that brings us to our break. And when we come back, we're going to get to interrogate Charlie about how she did this in her own work. All right. Welcome back. This is when I get to ask Charlie all about her book. What? I've been so excited about this novel for so long because I read an early draft. I read a later draft. It's amazing. It's called The City in the Middle of the Night. Um, You can buy it now. And it's set in the far future of humanity. First, tell us what the far future is, because I don't think that's a spoiler. It's just the setup for the novel. And then how how did you come up with it? Like, how did you backfill? And like, how much is in the book? And how much did you just write down for yourself? And now we're going to get some good backstory. Yeah, so I think it's the far future, depending on how you define it. At one point towards the end of the book, this is not really a spoiler, you finally find out what the date is, according to Earth chronology. And oh. the date is, I think, the 33rd century. I think you're safely in the far future. Yeah, it's the 33rd century. It takes place on this other planet called January that humans colonized a long time ago. I would say back at the envelope, humans have been there for about 500 Earth years. And it was a long voyage from Earth. And it was probably like the 26th century when they left Earth. And obviously, there's all the stuff of like when you travel interstellar distances, there's time dilation and all that kind of stuff. But basically, it's the 33rd century back on Earth. I kind of came up with this whole complicated human society on this other planet where humans are living in these two different cities. On the planet January. On the planet January. And part of the background of the story is that it's a planet that's tidally locked, which means that one side always faces the sun, one side always faces away from the sun. There's a permanent day side and a permanent night side. On my planet, at least, humans live in the narrow strip of twilight, which is called the Terminator, in between the day side and the night side. Part of what I thought about a lot is that on this planet, people don't have a good way of measuring the passage of time, like the sun doesn't rise or set, the sky never really changes, everything kind of looks the same all the time. And so, you know. It just would totally mess up your circadian rhythms. It would. It would freak me out. Like, my body needs that. Yeah, and it kind of, it kind of has this dreamlike feel, kind of, for people who've grown up in it and lived with it their whole lives. And in one of the two human cities, they have basically created curfews and other arrangements to make sure that everybody sleeps and works on a very strict day-night schedule that's like fully artificial. And then on the other, in the other city, they just do whatever the hell they want. And everybody's kind of out of control and a little bit unhinged. And, you know, it's something that if you grow up with it, maybe you're more used to it, but it is really disturbing and weird. And that was part of what I tried to do is convey how weird and disturbing it was. But in the course of doing this, I had to really think about who were these people before they came to this planet? Yeah. Like it would have been really, really easy to just say, well, they're on the planet now. They've been there for like 500 years. So it doesn't really matter what their cultures were before they left Earth because that's the distant past to them. And I could have probably gotten away with that. I probably could have just been like, well, whatever. And part of the reason I didn't want to get away with that is because it felt unreal to me. It didn't feel like it didn't feel true to what I know of human nature, which is that we hold on to that stuff. We hold on to 
our ancestry and our heritage from like you know, long ago. Yeah. I mean, people today absolutely give a shit about what was going on 500 years ago. They I mean, absolutely they're, do. you know, we still have a lot of the same nations that mm-hmm. were around, speak the same languages that were around. We're reading books that were written 500 years ago. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, I think that would be really unrealistic. And people are still, you know, fighting conflicts that they were fighting 500 or even a thousand years or ago in some parts of the world. 3,000 years ago. Yeah. There are still Things pissed. that were people are people are pissed about something that happened in the year you know, eleven hundred or whatever. So it, I felt like you needed that kind of deep backstory of what happened before they left Earth and what happened on the way from Earth to this other planet, January. And part of what I thought about is how to handle race, how to handle ethnicity in this far future. And again, some people handle ethnicity and race by basically just kind of sweeping it under the rug and saying, well, everybody's interbred to the point where we're all mixed race and race doesn't exist anymore. And I didn't entirely buy that, partly because I think it's fair to say that ethnic groups might not be constructed or viewed the same in the year 3209 or whatever it is as they are currently. But I don't think that we would just I don't think people ever just get rid of the idea of like your own ethnic groups, your own in-groups. And part of that is because it is connected to history and to this, all this heritage and all this cultural heritage and all this shared trauma and all this stuff that happened in the past that people still consider important. So I tried to think of a way to do it that wasn't just sweeping it under the rug and wasn't just kind of like hand-waving it or saying, well, some of these people have dark skin and some of them have light skin and that's all I'm going to tell you about them. And they're just all the same ethnic group now. So I thought about it and basically what I came up with was this probably way too complicated backstory where basically at some point in the next few hundred years from now, things get really bad environmentally. There's some disasters. There's probably some wars involving advanced weaponry that basically trash a lot of the planet's surface. On Earth. On Earth. Mm -hmm. And the remaining surviving humans live in, I named seven city-states that people live in on Earth. There could have been others. But there are these seven city-states that are basically, I chose places that are not you know, mostly what you'd call major cities today. One of them, is, for example, is Ulaanbaatar in, in what's now Mongolia. One of them is Merida in what's now Mexico. One of them is Calgary. Yay! Um, and, you know, and I had this whole complicated thing of, like, for example, Calgary probably um, took in a bunch of refugees from the United States because it was the only place standing, like, north of Mexico that, that people could go to. So probably both Merida and Calgary took a bunch of refugees from the United States who probably caused a lot of trouble. Anyway, so... Yeah, they point, probably tried to keep some of them out, too. Yeah, they probably tried to keep a lot of them out. You know, what comes around goes around. Yeah. In, like, the 23rd, 24th century, you have these seven city-states, and Zagreb, in what's now Croatia, becomes basically, like, the Paris of the 24th century. It becomes the place that everybody goes nice. to be civilized and to have fancy tea parties. And I came up with, like... Croatia is also incredibly beautiful. It is really beautiful. And Zagreb is famous for its beautiful coffee houses. Yeah. It's famous for its, like, rich culture. And so it didn't seem like much of a stretch to think of it becoming, like, the Paris of the 24th century. Mm -hmm. And, And I thought about, like, what technological specialties that each of these cities might have that they would contribute towards the mothership that they build to travel from Earth to January. And, for example, Khartoum in what's now Sudan is basically the center of computing in the 24th, 25th, 26th centuries. And it designed all the onboard computer systems in the mothership. And a lot of the people who lived in Khartoum were were cyborgs. Mm, So that's like 
um, Khartoum Valley or whatever. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Silicon Khartoum. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and so on and so forth. And like Merida in what's now Mexico was like the aerospace capital. And so they designed all the engines and all oh, the yeah. rockets. And, and so I just sort of thought about all this stuff and kind of came up with what I thought was like a plausible-ish future history that leads to all these resentments and anxieties that people in the 33rd century are still kind of chewing over, at least in the one city where everybody can do what they want, where people talk about this stuff more freely. I wanted that level of detail because I wanted it to not feel like Lee Presson future. And I wanted it to not feel like either we have exactly the same ethnic groups and exactly the same issues that we had in the 21st century, or that we, we've just gotten rid of it. People don't have that stuff anymore. I think that's super important because as you were talking, I was thinking about how one of the ways that future histories really come alive is if we do get a sense of that deep time, you know, what has happened in that time and how it's evolved out of cultures that we have on Earth, but also transcended them. But like you said, not letting go of the fact that humans are kind of designed to have in-groups and out-groups. I mean, not designed, but that's something that it's a pattern that we fall into again and again. It's comforting and it is a way of knowing who we are. It's a way of remembering history. I mean, we remember history through myths, through stories, through saying that these are our people and that's what our people went through. I mean, this is one of the things I loved about the novel, but I also, it's super interesting to hear you kind of walking through all the stages and like, I love that you kind of wrote this whole backstory that, like, I assume some of it shows up in the book, but, like, some of it we kind of don't necessarily know all that stuff. I think you really see the tip of the iceberg in the book. And I think that somebody who reads the book really carefully and pays attention will glean a large amount of what I just said, but they won't ever get, like, there's no info dump. There's no moment where everybody just, like, sits down and explains the backstory of, like what happened on Earth and everything. Which is also very realistic because we never sit down with each other and say like, as you know, 500 <laughs> years ago during the Protestant Reformation, um, <laughs> all people came to the fore. Actually, wait, Protestant Reformation was like more like 400 years ago? I don't know, whatever. Who cares? That's not what we're talking about right now. Um, it, was, it was like 500. Yeah, let, let's go with that. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm still dealing with that. You know, I'm still I'm still struggling. I think we all are. Yeah. I think we definitely all I are. I think we're all, we're still kind of in recovery from that in the United States. So this kind of leads me to my next question, which you were kind of addressing before about, okay, we're in this incredibly alien environment with this huge chunk of history behind it. How do you create relatable characters in that, like, how did, in that space, like, how did you think about making a character that would feel sufficiently alien, but also relatable? It was really hard. You know, there was a lot of just walking into walls over and over again and going like, <laughs> thud, thud. I mean, I remember like talking to you like three, four years ago, we were out on a walk and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like every character in this book is in some way an alien. They're humans, except for we do meet some actual aliens. Some yeah, the actual, indigenous people on the we, planet are. We do meet some indigenous yeah. life forms who are not human, but everybody else is human. But they've grown up on this other planet. They've lived in this other weird environment. And like, there's a reason why my previous novel, All the Birds in the Sky, takes place in very near future Earth, like probably a few years into the future, with humans in a recognizable setting. A lot of it takes place in San Francisco, which is a place that I could pretty much like write about in my sleep at this point because I've lived here for so long. You know, and that was 
a lot easier and a lot more comfortable in some ways than writing about people living in this really different setting, really different set of expectations. And, you know, I remember whining to you about how hard it is to write people who live on another planet. And, you know. So what was your big breakthrough? Like, what was the, like, with one of your characters, like, what was the moment where you were like, okay, I, this character feels real to me? I don't think there was a big breakthrough. I think what there was was just a lot of, like, just filling in, you know, enough of their emotional inner life and, like, enough of, like, their backstory and, like, enough of how they deal with, like, a big theme in the book is trauma. And it kind of relates back to this idea of, like, the passage of time and not really being able to get a sense of the passage of time because Mm. the sun never rises or sets. And so things that are in the past feel both more present and also harder to kind of grasp a hold of because you don't know exactly how long ago things happened which I think is an interesting way of thinking about trauma. Trauma often distorts your sense of how recently something happened anyway. Mm-hmm. And one of your characters, Mouth, her name is Mouth, mm-hmm. um, she's also dealing with her ethnic identity, and which is an identity that didn't ever exist on Earth, but like is kind of the source of her trauma. Yeah, and she was part of this group of uh, nomads, this sort of intentional community that somehow, you know, 100, 200, maybe 300 years ago started walking around the planet and just sort of being nomadic, and they got wiped out except for Mouth, and that's not really a spoiler. And she's still kind of struggling with that and still trying to figure out what it means to have been part of this community that was wiped out. And that's kind of a thing that resonates throughout the book. Honestly, I mean, for me, creating characters, there's a lot that goes into it in terms of like, you know, you kind of have to believe in them yourself. Like, I think that if the author really believes in the characters and really kind of buys into the reality of their situation to the point where they can't just like snap out of what they're dealing with, they're in it, it's real to them, they can't escape from it. If the author buys into it and believes in it, I feel like the reader is more likely to. And, you know, we were talking about this the other day and I was saying that to some extent, it's there's a lot of acting that goes into this. Like, I feel like, I mean, I'm a failed actor. I used to do acting in high school and I was bad at it. But I do a lot of acting now. Like I will often act out a scene between two characters in my head or out loud in the shower or sometimes even on the street, unfortunately. Um, and <laughs> it's I'll true. Just... I've seen her talk to herself <laughs> on, the, on the street. <laughs> I will act out like a confrontation between two characters because I want to understand what what is each of them thinking as they go into this scene? What are they each kind of grappling with? What are they upset about? What are they dealing with? And, you know, I will just completely like try to get in their head their headspace for mm-hmm. that scene and get into character or whatever. And you know, I think that the world building thing is also really important, especially if it's a really unfamiliar setting. Like talk about Le Guin, I've been rereading all of her Hainish novels and just these little details of like food and smells and music and like customs that are strange and unfamiliar and just like little sights and sounds and sensations add up to a sense that this world is real. And then you kind of believe that if the world is real, the character is real. Mm-hmm. And our friend Claire Light actually really kind of kicked my ass in with the city in the middle of the night to kind of go back. She was like, some there are places here where the world building doesn't feel quite deep enough and you need to add just a little bit more of like how the history comes out in everything you see and touch and, and everything. And I had to go back and kind of flesh that out a little bit more in some places. And Claire Light herself is an amazing world builder. She so, is. Uh, you can check out her stuff. We'll, we'll put a link uh, yeah, in the we, show notes. Yeah, we sure will. It's all about the author suspending disbelief and then hopefully the reader suspending disbelief. But I think that, you know, what throws me out of a story as a reader is when the characters don't feel like they have a real reaction to what's happening around them or they don't feel fully in the situation. And so that's the thing I kind of grapple with. 
but it was tough. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that there's the history that goes into the world building, you know, like kind of the civilization history. But then each character kind of has to have a history in order to understand their motivations, you know, because there's this sort of classic thing of the actor saying, like, what are my motivations? And often the answer to that question, as silly as it is, and it's often sort of made fun of, but it's a real thing in acting. Like, you kind of have to know where your character's coming from. Mm -hmm. What was their experience with this kind of thing before? Like, you could enter into a situation that would make one person laugh and another person cringe. And that's the motivation, like, is finding out why that happened. Yeah. And actually, that's a really good point about, like, how people react really differently and unpredictably to situations. One of the tests of whether a character feels real and kind of fleshed out and interesting to me is how much they surprise me, like how much as I'm writing them, they respond to a situation in a way that I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have thought that's how they respond. But okay, that actually makes perfect sense with what they've been dealing with. And you know, it's funny, like the TV show Lost, which I have a lot of critiques of, one thing that Lost did that was I thought was brilliant and that I think about a lot these days is whenever they would show a, a flashback of one of the characters, they were always kind of a completely different person in the flashback than they are now. You would see... John Locke, or whatever his name was, was this kind of mild-mannered, weedy guy who was kind of meek and quiet. And on the island, he's this kind of badass, like, machete-wielding adventurer <laughs> guy. And, like, that was the thing that that show did a lot, where whenever you saw a flashback, the characters would be somebody completely different in the flashback. And they would be like, oh, they've changed but even before the show started. And I feel like that's another thing that makes a character believable to me is that they didn't just start changing when the story started. They've been changing even before. When we find out about their past, they've already been through changes. All right. Well, thanks for telling us a little bit of a tease about your Aww, book. Thank uh, you. Yeah. And um, it's called? The City in the Middle of the Night. And it is available now wherever people still sell books. But try to get it from an indie bookstore because yes. they're they're like they always, are the best. yeah, helping us out and they're places where you can get good recommendations. All right. Well, when we're back, we will dive into the research hole and you can find out what Charlie and I have been researching when we should be writing. So, Annalie, what have you been researching recently? <laughs> so there's a story that's been circulating uh, for a couple of weeks now about a discovery in Germany of the skeleton of a woman that's about a thousand years old. And the most interesting part of it is what was found in her teeth. Usually when archaeologists and um, anthropologists are trying to understand someone's life, they will examine the calcium on their teeth because, of course, people didn't used to brush their teeth and go to the dentist. And so stuff that they ate, stuff that they put in their mouth um, would turn into calcium layers on their teeth, almost like tree rings or something. And you can kind of dig through it and you can learn things about their diet, their health, where they were born. And so that can tell you whether they traveled a distance. This group of scientists were examining these teeth and they found all of these little blue flecks. And they were like, first, okay, is this contamination? What is this? Was she eating rocks? Like, we don't understand. And they tested it, and they found out that the flecks were lapis lazuli, which means two things. One, she was some kind of artist because a lot of illuminated manuscripts during the Middle Ages uh, used lapis lazuli in their blue ink. 
And the other thing is lapis lazuli exclusively comes from Afghanistan, which means not only was this lady an artist a thousand years ago, but she was a freaking fancy ass artist. She <laughs> had incredibly expensive imported ink that was highly valued, very, very expensive, possibly more expensive than gold. And this led to a much better understanding of who had lived at this site in Germany. It's Dalheim, Germany. And currently there is a, a monastery, like a ruined monastery there where men lived. But beneath that men's monastery, there was a women's community that thrived there over a thousand years ago. You know, maybe a dozen women lived there or less. And they were clearly producing some of the most valued manuscripts of that time. And there's some records, we're not sure exactly what manuscripts they created, but what they would have been doing was creating all of the kind of illuminations, like all the drawings in the margins, which were very popular in medieval manuscripts. You'd mm -hmm. have like, you can look this up online, like there's all these beautiful illuminated books with, you know, incredible illustrations of what's in the text and sometimes even what isn't in the text. So there are some records of a nearby monastery um, sending out, you know, manuscripts to be done by other communities. So it's possible that they were doing this in connection with another monastery. But the point is that to me, the thing I loved about this story was the fact that this group of archaeologists took the time to uncover this mystery about this one woman, this anonymous woman who in her lifetime must have been an incredible person, like incredibly connected, talented, you know, working on some of the, you know, most valued books of the day. Her name is lost to time. Her community has been lost. It's been literally buried underneath a men's community. But by excavating, we can learn so much about her. And there was just something so scientifically interesting about it, but also culturally interesting. And it kind of fits with what we've been talking about, about history. And like, how do you know your history? And this is a piece of history that we just didn't know. We didn't know that there was this woman who was so badass that she got this fucking fancy ass lapis lazuli ink. Uh, and now we know that. And actually, it kind of changes the way I think about women's history, just to know that, and the way I think about just sort of the history of literacy in general. Yeah. And also, they brought this lapis lazuli on the Silk Road, like all the way to Germany. So that's also like a whole other thing to it's think amazing. about. I love this story. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but there's lots of places I've already written about it. So you may have already read about it. But um, now you know more about why blue spots on a woman's teeth can tell you about your history. Tell me about your research hall. So my research hall is a little bit more recent and perhaps a little bit a little bit different. I've been obsessively researching about the feud between LL Cool J and Cool Modi, which uh -huh. was I think the it, it, does this first... have like a speculative element to it at all, or this is just your usual musical obsession? It's just my usual musical obsession. Right. I mean, you know, Continue. it's interesting. Carry this was on. the first kind of major feud in hip hop. And I feel like, wow. you know, it kind of does feel like a superhero thing. It feels like a clash between two superheroes. It feels like I was thinking about it this morning, how it, it kind of puts me in mind of like, it makes me think of rappers becoming more superheroic because they have these like giant clashes of titans. Basically, so Cool Modi was like one of the original old school rappers. He was even before Sugar Hill Records, he was recording, but he was with Sugar Hill Records. He became part of the group The Treacherous Three, 
which was like alongside Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang. They were one of the first great rap groups. And then he continued to have a solo career after that. And then in the mid-80s or like, yeah, the mid-80s, LL Cool J comes along and it kind of is kind of part of this new group of rappers. And a bunch of people felt like LL Cool J was stealing their rapping style and not crediting them. And so Cool Modi, among other people, kind of challenged him. But the fight between Cool Modi and LL Cool J became much more kind of intense and personal with them writing lots and lots of lyrics about each other. Like a lot of my favorite songs by both of them are actually just disses aimed at each other. Like Cool Modi's like How You Like Me Now and LL Cool J's Jack the Ripper and like Mama Said Knock You Out. You know, there's like a bunch of pages that talk about like the different lyrics and how they comment on each other's appearance and like LL Cool J makes fun of Cool Modi's Star Trek sunglasses. There's like a science what? fiction reference and like <laughs> Cool Modi makes fun of LL Cool J for your, like showing off his muscles and like and doing these like schmoopy love songs that, you know, he was kind of the first I guess, to do those to that extent, you know, and it just kind of carried on into the 90s. And like they kept kind of putting out songs, dissing each other and challenging each other to a rap battle that never actually happened. I don't think. Wow. They never actually had. I mean, they kind of were having a battle. Yeah. They were battling through like song lyrics aimed at each other, but they never like showed up and just battled each other. I was like hoping there would be like a Cardi B, Nicki Minaj moment or something where people would be like hit with shoes or bitten or whatever. I don't think so. I think that I don't even know how much if they ever really met that much. Like, I think that they just were throwing barbs at each other. Wow. And, you know, at one point, like, Cool Modi... So polite. Cool Modi was, like, coming up with, like... He had one song where he just came up with, like, a million things that the LL and LL Cool J could have stood for, which, by the way, <laughs> it actually stands for Ladies Love Cool James. Uh-huh. But he was like, it could stand for Limp Lover. And uh-huh. like, there's like a million, like just a bunch of things that LL could stand for. And I, just, yeah, I can imagine. You know, it's kind of like when Iron Man and Thor fight. Mm-hmm. It's, it's also like kind of like, it helps actually explain to me like why I feel like um, superhero stories go so well with hip hop and rap. They like, do, They yeah. really are like, they should always be together forever. Like that should be, Hip hop and rap should be the music of superheroes, like and and funk. I'll throw throw funk in there yeah, too for you. Okay, thank you. Just for you, yeah. Thank you. And I think that's why, for example, you know, into the Spider Verse, like the music worked so well oh my because God, I love that movie. they were playing in that tradition uh, with with the music, and so um, yeah, it was just it was totally perfect. So, wow. I, well, thank you for that insight into. I, I'm still thinking about. Cardi and Nikki, but <laughs> it's good to know that there was like a more polite, gentlemanly. I don't way think of it was fighting. polite. I think I that, feel like it was know. gentlemanly because nobody threw anything, nobody got bitten, nobody was shot. Like it's just like the music. They were just fighting it, with the music. You know, compared to like using their Biggie words. and Tupac, it was definitely not. You yeah, know. they were using their words. All right, so that's been another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on Patreon at Our Opinions Are Correct. You can also download episodes wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if that's what you're using. It really helps people to find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And you can find us on Facebook if you're still using Facebook, which <clears throat> whatever. And also thanks to Veronica Simonetti at Women's Audio Mission for amazing production and editing. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks to you for listening. And Yay, we'll be back. Thank you. We in, love you. We love you. And we'll be back in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>